1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast, and I have Whitney Stoppel. She's a professor at the University of Florida, uh, head of the Stoppel Lab, named after her, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, her work there. So, Whitney, thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, uh, the subject is a bit complicated, so it's probably better if you explain it, but can you talk about the, the nature of your work and the basics of it?
2: Sure, yeah. So um at the University of Florida, my lab is really interested in understanding and designing natural materials that hopefully eventually a surgeon will be able to utilize to aid in repair of either injured or diseased tissue in a patient. And so we're really interested in being able to design these materials such that they have different properties that kind of match the wound healing rates of our patients. So a lot of times patients who have diabetes or um, you know have had um, some other secondary complications, recent surgeries, things like that can have slower wound healing rates than, say, a healthy patient or even um, a young child. And so we're really interested in understanding how we can build and create uh, materials that will meet these kind of different timescales that our patients will present with in the clinic.
1: Well, I mean, there's so many tissues in the body and opportunities. So what kind of tissues and what's the focus of it initially?
2: Yeah, so I I agree that um that this the the body is quite complex and so um you know, we're interested in starting with looking at uh things that are um kind of more familiar from my background. Um so looking at things like skeletal muscle or cardiac tissue um which are kind of tissues that have an elastic nature to them. And as patients age or during disease, this elastic nature of the material or of the tissue itself um, kind of changes. And so we're interested in being able to build materials and design these natural biomaterials that have this elasticity and structure that matches what healthy tissue will look like.
1: Well, what kind of tissues are you, you know, how far along are you? Have you picked a particular tissue and are you, well, you know, on the way towards creating it or engineering it or altering it?
2: Um, well, so right now the, the lab is new. Um, we just uh, opened our doors and took our first PhD students um, in October. And so we're kind of just getting up and going and transitioning some of the work um, that I had been focused on during my postdoc studies um, at Tufts University and translating um, some of the same concepts and ideas um, but for different tissues and strategies um, at the University of Florida.
1: So what, what's the method by which you would construct tissues or alter them? Is this like 3D printing or is it uh, you know, taking an existing piece of tissue and culturing it a certain way?
2: Yeah, so um, there are uh, many different strategies that you can generate um, three-dimensional structures in the lab. Um, 3D printing is definitely a new and hot topic. Um, however, the, one of the materials that we're really interested in is um, silk fibroin, which is a natural biopolymer that can be extracted from the cocoons of a silkworm. And so we're actually able to take these cocoons and um, wash them and actually boil them and break the polymer or protein structure down into um, a solution format, kind of like a, a viscous solution like honey and water and then take this solution and we can cast um, our scaffolds um, that we'll use to eventually grow muscle tissue in, um, in different molds. And so then these molds, um, once the the polymer solution is in the mold, um, there are a few different ways that we can kind of set the polymer structure um, through freezing and um, removal of water. And then um, finally, through um, basically processing the silk protein and turning it from something that's soluble in water into something that is um, not soluble in water. And so once we've converted it into a format that isn't soluble in water any longer, we can then have this fully formed scaffold that we can utilize in um, in our tissue structures.
1: So will, will an entire piece of tissue be grown outside the body and then inserted, or you can you do this in vivo?
2: Um, so actually, that's a really great question. So from a biomaterials and tissue engineering standpoint, a lot of people um, are really interested in doing both. And so I think that way down the road in the future, it will be great if we can um, create tissues outside of the lab that have living cells in them, that potentially came from the patient um, who was injured um, and and then cultured outside of the body and implanted to help that patient, um, you know, with with their wound healing. However, um, right now, I think that there are a lot of um, kind of clinical hurdles to doing that and being able to make sure that um, the materials with cells in them are, are really sterile, that we don't um, induce any sort of contamination, or uh, in the, in that case, like something that might cause an infection in our patient, or even um, introduce cells in a way that could lead to abnormal growth or, um, you know, uh, scar tissue formation. And so for us right now, we're really interested in being able to make these materials in an acellular format or a format without any cells in them, and so we'll put cells in them to understand how the cells respond um, and, and to do fundamental analyses of kind of how the cells like or dislike almost the material. Um, but the the goal is right now to develop an acellular platform that um, a surgeon could utilize because these are much easier to sterilize. Um, they're much easier to uh, kind of translate into a a surgical environment, you know, they're easier to store, you don't have to make them right away. And so there's a lot more um, flexibility in kind of that clinical translation aspect.
1: Well, how do you know um, what the morphology of a tissue should be or how would the cells know which direction to grow in, when to stop, what shapes to make and all that?
2: Yeah. So that's basically the, one of the main thrusts of our research. So um, as we're looking at these materials, we like to think about kind of how the cell is going to perceive the material, how the cell um, or the tissue is going to digest the material, and over what time period that might happen. And so, for skeletal muscle um, kind of repair or rehabilitation, we're really interested in trying to get at the time scales at which that repair happens in the body and then be able to tune our material to kind of degrade and disappear over that same time scale. So what's really nice about our platform is that we can independently control some of these variables of degradation rate, maybe like the the size or the structure of the pores or the holes within the material that the cells can crawl in and around, Um, and then also tune the composition of the material. So by adding different components like a growth factor or um, some sort of other cell signaling bioactive component to kind of help the cells um, in that environment following implantation to kind of not do the wrong thing. But I think that's a that's a major challenge in this field is is really understanding upon implantation what are the cells in the local environment going to do, and so. We think that um, by utilizing these silk materials and by including the appropriate bioactive factors, maybe we can limit the potential for chronic inflammation and scar tissue formation um, through the ability to slowly release things that might kind of trick the immune system into not responding in a, in a negative way that would not promote wound healing in these tissues.
1: So you have to use um Man made materials, at least for the scaffolding, or you know yeah that's what so, I'm
2: so, how do the how
1: do the cells know how do the cell's signaling works so that the tissue knows where to go, how far to go, the pore size, and all that like how does the body and the cells do all this without any instruction from outside?
2: yeah, so that's a very great question as well, often termed the fetal gene reprogramming or or fetal gene expression, and so when you're right during um development. Uh, As a human, we express certain genes, and our cells secrete certain proteins, and they kind of follow this um, unknown and uh, really awesome track in order to generate a full human. And so um, recently, people have shown through the development of organoids and things like that utilizing stem cells, that cells that haven't fully matured or that have been Um, kind of backwards program to have more of a fetal gene-like expression are actually able to regenerate structures um, based on local cues from the environment. And so the trick that every biomaterials and tissue engineer hopes to be able to find is what exactly is that appropriate set of environmental and local microenvironment, um, the cues, what is that appropriate set of cues, both ones that are um, stable and stuck, like the material versus soluble ones that are floating around kind of in the liquid. How do we find this perfect set of cues? And how do we know over what time frame those sets of cues should be expressed? And so we're really hoping to answer some of these questions because it, they're not known the, the the method or how to do this is really not fully known and it's going to be different um for every tissue type and so by utilizing cells that are not fully mature um we have some ability to just get them to do what they know how to do and become mature cells however in patients who have diseases like muscular dystrophies or things like this where the cells are are already doing the wrong thing, then we can't expect the cells to um, just kind of go about their um, business and and form nice new tissue. And so, it's really important that we do both clinical and, um, you know, implantation or in vivo studies to look at responses to these materials alongside fundamental studies in the lab, like in a dish, where we can begin to understand how the cue that we give our cells changes their long-term behavior almost. And so um, we're really focused on, on understanding the main parameter of time within tissue regeneration um, and how we can utilize our materials to adjust time-dependent cues during the wound healing process. And so from a biomaterials standpoint, these are... Um, You know, things we control with how we build the scaffold, how big the scaffold is, how cross-linked it is, the structure of the scaffold, how elastic it is, um, these types of things. Uh, But in all situations, every time you change a cell type, even if you use, um, you know, some muscle cells from a pig or a rat, the response is going to be different than if you use muscle cells from a human. Um, So every, every creature is slightly different. And so, um, you know, it's important for us to try to answer these questions prior to just sticking this material in a human and hoping that it works. And so, I think that that's right. kind of what what makes this field take a long time to reach a, a clinical realization of a material in vivo.
1: Yeah, and then, um, what percentage of a given tissue is scaffolding and man-made materials versus uh, the cells that you know innovate it and grow around it?
2: Yeah, so for our scaffolds, they're um, kind of like a sponge. So we make these sponges out of silk from the cocoons of a silkworm. And so, in most cases, the the void fraction or the the air space prior to putting any tissue in there can be controlled based on how much polymer you add. And so, in most cases, the scaffolds we're using right now for a lot of our skeletal muscle applications. Are about 65 to 75% scaffold, with the opposite, the uh, 25 to 35% being open space where tissue can grow and form. However, because the protein um, or because the scaffold is made out of silk, which is a protein, um, once that scaffold is put into the body, uh, enzymes that are secreted by cells um, can actually degrade the scaffold. So over time, the scaffold will disappear um, and be replaced completely by tissue. However, um, it's this rate of degradation that if you if it happens too fast, then the tissue may be too weak or um, as you mentioned before, may not have enough vasculature or enough blood vessels in order to support the healthy maintenance of that tissue. And so we're really interested in this dynamic interplay between tissue infiltration into the material, um, and then the deposition of new protein and um, healthy tissue formation without inflammation or, or with limited inflammation. And, um, and then kind of the slow degradation of the material as the new tissue that's been deposited integrates well with the, the, injured, the injured
1: area. If the uh, scaffolding disappears though, why would there be an immune response? Or wouldn't they just be a temporary one that goes away?
2: So in a lot of cases, the patient um that we're interested in treating has had a traumatic injury. And so um, you know, for uh skeletal muscle repair, perhaps this could be a casualty of war or a car accident or something like that. And so anytime um a patient has injuries or even surgery, um, all of these induce an immune response. And so an acute immune response or a short-term immune response is healthy and is good for wound healing. However, a chronic immune response will often lead to um, poor tissue formation and actually will end up replacing what should be healthy tissue with scar. And then in a lot of applications um, and, and clinical manifestations of these injuries, the scar tissue continues to expand over time. So instead of your injury healing um, into a, a healthy muscle, following the implantation of some sort of scaffold or something like that, um, the the tissue will form scar-like tissue, and then that scar-like tissue over time will kind of expand and take over local healthy tissue that wasn't even injured in the first place, and this scar expansion. Um, both in skeletal muscle and in cardiac muscle, um, actually is often what leads to um, basically decreases in patient prognosis or the ability of the patient to really use the muscle for its function. And so like a heart attack, for example, when a patient has a heart attack, there's scar tissue that forms at the site of the blocked blood vessel. And then um, because of the way our our bodies are made, um, our cardiac tissue doesn't regrow and and our cardiac cells are unable to um, kind of repair this injury. And so what happens is the scar tissue where that original injury was will expand over time. And so for some patients, the scar will expand over a period of 10 years and it won't necessarily influence their um, quality of life. But for other patients, it will expand much faster, and this is known as the transition from having, you know, just having had a, a heart attack to actually transitioning into heart failure. And so the same thing is true when with your, skeletal muscle; it's just not as catastrophic for the patient.
1: Well, when you when you say the scar expands, does it co-opt normal tissues and turn them to scar, or it just grows yes. and pushes out normal tissue?
2: Yeah. So it actually uh, it actually takes over normal tissue. And the structure of the normal tissue turns into the structure of scar tissue. So the cells that are there um, kind of take on an angry uh, or inflammatory uh, mindset and change their gene expression and um, actually make proteins and uh, things that are, are representative of scar tissue. And so what at the time of injury was actually healthy tissue over time turns into scar tissue. And, and this is actually a, a major clinical problem and something that we're hoping our, our materials are able to address in the future.
1: Yeah, that's very odd. I mean, how small of a nucleus or a, um, you know, a site or a seed of scar tissue is needed to have it proliferate and uh, eat up all the surrounding tissue?
2: Yeah, so I wish I knew the answer to your question. Uh, that would make my math and material design a lot easier Unfortunately, I think that um, that's really going to be patient-to-patient dependent. In the same way that a cold influences one patient's immune system differently than another's, um, these types of inflammatory events at the muscular level uh, influence different patients in different ways. So, um, characteristically, children are much better at recovering from injury than elderly adults, Um, and and as I mentioned before, patients with diabetes are also um, less adept at recovering from injury than patients who are um, the same age but are not diabetic. And so, um, we're hoping that we can start by trying to classify our patients based on risk factors. Um, and from their environment and from their known medical history, so that we can develop a platform of materials that will kind of um, suit a patient under a certain set of risk factors. So hopefully a surgeon would be able to go in and say, okay, I'm going to use a cell-free material to augment this injury and um, help this patient recover. However, we anticipate that um, the wound healing rate for this patient will be slower, maybe over a couple months. Um, and so we're going to choose this product. And, um, you know, if the if there was also a child in comparison, maybe they would choose a, a different product that had a faster rate of degradation and release of factors that promote wound healing um, in comparison to what products they might choose for an elderly patient with a similar injury.
1: Okay, yeah, it all makes sense. It's just why, we don't know why, so many questions, but um, have you, another thought that came to mind is what if you um, created a tissue with a scaffolding where the scaffolding was internal to the tissue? You know, there was at least one or more layers of cells that comprised the outside of the tissue and the scaffolding was purely internal. Would that be enough to hide it from the immune system yet still provide enough structure for the tissue to? Uh, you know, to survive until the point where the uh, you know, the inner scaffolding gets uh, eaten away or taken away?
2: Yeah. So I, this strategy is actually, um, or the strategy of at least hiding the material or hiding the, the cells from the immune system is really common in um, kind of the tissue engineering field for type 1 diabetes, where there is um, kind of an, an immune response. The reason a patient has type 1 diabetes is their immune system attacks their pancreas. And so um, there's a lot of effort to make materials that hide from the immune system for applications um, for type 1 diabetes. However, I think for us, in the idea of treating skeletal muscle, we actually want our materials to stimulate the immune system at the right way and at the right time. So this is basically the, the fundamental nature of our work, We are trying to understand what that right time is and exactly what the right way is. And so, instead, if we can harness the power and the wound healing power of our immune system, then we should be able to make these materials that actually improve wound healing rather than just supplement or fill gaps or things like that, which is what our current materials do. So, instead, we're interested in building materials that can control. The wounding, wound healing environment, um, and kind of, kind of bring the cells that are causing scar tissue formation, um, the the proteins that they're secreting that make scar, instead, uh, trick them almost into making proteins that um, are the basis and structure for healthy tissue.
1: What about scar? Um, <clears throat> the scarring process itself, you know, has this been studied extensively and you know, what's causing the scarring? Is it the immune system, you know, uh, trying to surround and block out the offending elements, or is it the cells themselves that are changing that are just next to the um you know to the, the foreign element and those are forming around it? Like how does scarring happen?
2: Yeah, so um in in for example, the um in skeletal muscle, um there are numerous different types of cells that are present within the tissue. Um, There's the actual muscle cells themselves that allow uh, you to run or or to pick up uh, your water bottle. Um, And then there are the vessel cells, so endothelial cells and and smooth muscle cells that um, kind of make up your blood vessels and the structures of those. Um, In your muscles, you also have nerves, which is how your brain communicates with your leg and tells it to move. Um, But then you have this other kind of A devious population of cells um, that are termed, in some cases, fibroblastic; um, in other cases, stromal cells, um, and they're basically like a filler cell population. And um, in a in a healthy patient where there is no wound um, and no inflammation, uh, these cells are kind of quiescent, or they're not doing very much. They're just kind of there for maintenance um, and uh, help you. Uh, just maintain your muscle the way that it should be. However, when an injury happens, the fibroblasts and stromal cells that are present within the tissue are really important for, um, for example, in uh, making clots. So um, fibrin is a main component of clots and um, fibroblasts are, or the stromal cell population can be um, a component of clot formation and, and secreting the right proteins to kind of um, prevents your, you from bleeding in lots of places. And so, um, this stromal population, which includes these fibroblasts are really the main component of scar tissue formation. So fibroblasts and, and, or what is termed a a stromal population, um, are known for making extracellular matrix. So the proteins Mm. that kind of make up the bulk of your tissue. And so this population, uh, when injured, will make new extracellular matrix. And when wound healing is perfect, it will, um, you know, you'll generate new extracellular matrix, muscle will regrow, and everything will be just fine. Um, But in situations where wound healing isn't perfect, um, the fibroblasts will get, I guess, almost overstressed, and they'll start making collagens. Um, and start making these thick fibers that are kind of unaligned and, and um, not properly oriented within the muscle tissue. And that's what starts to generate scar. And so mm. really scar tissue is great because it, it keeps your, your tissues from falling apart, but the expansion of that, uh, that scar tissue is what can lead to um, kind of negative patient prognosis. And so we want to use our material to kind of control and trick this stromal population and then the local immune cell population that's present within the tissue um, into not expanding the scar when it's not necessary.
1: Inside the body, you know, when there's a scar, does it have, is it, is it homogenous or is it heterogeneous? Does it have like different layers with different types of cells in it, or is it just all one thing that just keeps growing outwards with no different surface on it or interior?
2: Yeah. So, so scar tissue, I would say, in comparison mm-hmm. to healthy tissue in almost any organ, um, is very random. And so, um, I, I'm not quite sure how the body does it, but the body is very good about organizing its cells, creating tissues that have um, different structures. You know, your muscle is very anisotropic or it has um, very uh, long muscle fibers that form within the muscle. And when scar tissue forms, it goes in every which direction. It doesn't have that um, local kind of organization that your healthy tissue would. I mean, even in the liver or uh, in your skin, um, the, the scar tissue doesn't, uh, doesn't form in, a, in the same structure as um, the tissue that should be there. And so usually this mismatch in kind of the mechanical properties of the tissue, so how elastic the tissue is, for example, um, and a mismatch in kind of the composition, so the the chemical composition of that environment, um, continues to engage the local stromal population um, and, and anger it in a way that then leads it to continue to make scar tissue. However, if we knew how to stop the stromal population and the fibroblast from making more scar tissue, we would be doing it. Uh, but we don't, unfortunately. Right. And, and well, in what every about tissue, when, scarring,
1: when scarring ends on its own, when it stops on its own accord? Does it tend to form an outer layer that's different from all the other layers? Maybe that's the signal that tells the body, okay, we scarred enough, stop.
2: Yeah, so I think what really happens in situations like that, um, where scar tissue does not uh, end up hurting or impeding final tissue function, is that inflammation kind of settles down, and you don't continue to have the local bioactive signals in that area that uh, promote more scar tissue formation. And so... In um different tissues uh in say skeletal muscle versus the liver, for example, those bioactive cues are gonna be different and uh as biologists and tissue engineers we we aren't quite certain about which factors are showing up at exactly which time and uh how to mitigate their
1: existence mm. when um With any implant in the body then, is it safe to say that scarification will always happen and it will continue ad infinitum, or does it stop with any man-made material from inside the body? You know, a pacemaker, uh, a hip implant, uh, you know, whatever kind of implant it is.
2: Yeah. So, um, a lot of times there are things we can do to alter scar tissue formation. So, things like anti-inflammatories when given at the right time. Um, and for, um, you know, a- and at the right dosage can help and prevent um, scar tissue formation. Um, but hip implants, for example, um, we consider a lot of times the composition of those implants to kind of be ones that are designed to hide from the immune system. And thus, they are not as likely to induce scar tissue formation um, as compared to, um, say one of these uh, more natural materials that where we want new tissue to grow in its place. And so for a hip implant, we're not asking new tissue to grow and we're not asking new bone to form. We're just putting um, a foreign object there in replacing that uh, tissue. And so Mm. I think the main difference in, in between say a pacemaker or a hip implant And some of these newer tissue engineered strategies are that we're really trying to regrow um, or rehabilitate the tissue at the injury site, um, as opposed to fully replace it with a foreign object.
1: Mm. So what does the body use uh, to hold together your liver or to hold together your other organs? What kind of matrix scaffolding does it use?
2: So the body makes its own scaffolding, and that's termed extracellular matrix. Um, which is a combination of different proteins, um, like fibronectins, collagens, laminins, um, periostins, which are all different kind of, you could think of them as like biopolymer type proteins um, that are long and can intertwine with each other, can crosslink like any sort of synthetic polymer, um, but they have different sites along the structure where cells can grab on. Um, And so this happens through integrin binding. So cells have integrins on the surface of their cell membrane. And these proteins Mm. will recognize different uh, protein sequences in the extracellular matrix and essentially grab on like a handle. And so um, Mm. this is how cells kind of sense their environment. And so by utilizing natural materials or um, extracellular matrix-based materials within our scaffolds, we can promote cell attachment and cell adhesion and things like that within our systems. Um, however, natural materials that come from non-mammalian sources, such as silk protein or um, alginate, which comes from sea kelp or brown algae, these um, natural biopolymers don't actually have the handles on them, that allows cells hmm. to grab on. And so a lot of times when we're utilizing these natural materials that come from non-mammalian sources, we have to engineer handles onto these biopolymers so that our cells can grab on actually.
1: Hmm. Oh, why can't we use uh, the extracellular matrix as the scaffolding? Is it just hideously complex that we isolated the different components and try to grow a matrix from them?
2: So actually we do. Um, We do use uh, extracellular matrix as scaffolds. And so um, there's a really awesome company called Ventrix um, that is uh, out of California, which came out of Karen Christman's lab at UCSD. And this company Ventrix has a clinical trial that's ongoing that utilizes natural extracellular matrix from um, pig hearts. So the pig Mm -hmm. hearts are um, decellularized and all the cells are removed. And then the extracellular matrix components are kept and utilized in order to make a scaffold for applications in the heart. Um, And so this is really awesome. Um, However, in this type of situation, we have no control over the degradation rate of the material. We're kind of stuck with what the body wants to do. And so through combination of materials like silk or alginate and extracellular matrix components, we can add extra engineering parameters such as ability to tune degradation rate in vivo um that we wouldn't have if we only use um kind of naturally derived extracellular matrix component
1: okay well I learned a lot uh, you certainly have a difficult task ahead <laughs> of you, but uh you know I appreciate all your insight so what's the best way for folks to learn more and to uh maybe see some? some of the work, where can they go?
2: Um, well, so you can definitely check out my website, which is Um But then I also like to send um, students and um, my family uh, to um, check out, there's a journal um, called the Journal of Visualized Experiments, Joe's, and um, you can find their stuff at jove.com, I believe. Um, and the... The Jove website actually takes research that has been done by people in their labs at universities and makes short videos Mm. that describe the research they've done. Um, And so there's some great Jove articles on um, natural biomaterials and decellularization that I would highly recommend you check out.
1: Oh, very cool. Very, very excellent. Okay. Yeah, I could see on the site they have nearly 10,000 video articles. Wow.
2: Yeah. So, it, it makes it really nice to kind of translate um, vocabulary that is often foreign uh, to those who are new to the topic into something they can visually see.
1: Excellent. Well, that's great. Well, uh, Whitney, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and thanks for your time and attention and
0: everything.
2: Yeah, thank you so much.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, Or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use we dive deep into stem cells crispr cas9 the science of sleep epigenetics medical testing cancer ketogenic diets stem cells aging regenerative medicine and more my goal for you the listener is to learn from these podcasts you may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better steer you towards a new career will give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.